welcome to Onco Farm Pod. I'm your host, John Bazaar. To those of you who have been listening for a while and rating us on iTunes, and uh, thank you for, for joining us again. Go ahead and, and leave a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast. And for those of you who are new, uh, thanks for joining uh, the uh, Onco Farm Pod um, listening. Uh, just to, For those of you who may be new, uh, generally what we do here is uh, alternate between uh, a podcast on you know what's new, where the updates in oncology pharmacy, usually recent FDA approvals or changes to labels, updates to labels, uh, maybe uh, a new clinical trial that's been published, something like that. Uh, foundations in oncology series, we go through some of the commonly used drugs, uh, you know, just not real deep, but as a brief overview of the drug, uh, I like to do the history where it came from, how it's used, its its main toxicity to know about, uh, and how we maybe manage those. And then uh, the landmarks in oncology pharmacy series, where we look at a landmark publication in oncology pharmacy. And at the end of last week's podcast uh, about doxorubicin as a foundation in oncology pharmacy, I talked about the delivery of the first vials of donorubicin, or sorry, the first vials of doxorubicin delivered to Gianni Bonadonna, uh, an Italian um, oncology researcher. Well, today we're back with Bonadonna and the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine from February 19, 1976, called Combination Chemotherapy as an Adjuvant Treatment in Inoperable Breast Cancer. Not inoperable breast cancer, but in space, operable breast cancer. This is adjuvant CMF. Uh, the kids today, if they looked at history, would, would have called this the OG of adjuvant chemo. So let's get into this. So I mentioned uh, Gianni Bonadonna, um, very famous, uh, you know, if you PubMed Bonadonna space G, there's a lot that'll come back. Um, so let's get into, let's get into this. So, uh, you know, the start of the paper um, begins with uh, you talking about the different approaches between local surgery and radiation. Um, but prior to this publication in 1976, there really had been, uh, I think they used the word plateau, yeah, a plateau uh, in curates in the last 30 years from, from the late 40s, basically from the end of World War I until uh, 1976. No change in curates to breast cancer. So to kind of overcome that uh, plateau, uh, you know, they looked at a couple things, post-operative uh, removal of the ovaries or radiation ablation of the ovaries, what they call radiologic castration. Um, and, and that prolonged progression-free survival, but didn't improve overall survival. And, and just in case you're wondering where did tamoxifen come into play, uh, it was in clinical trials in, uh, you know, the first PubMed reference you get of tamoxifen is in 1973, looking at 10 milligrams twice a day or 20 milligrams twice a day but hadn't yet entered into uh, treatment uh, of breast cancer um, in a systematic way. Um, there was chemotherapy for, adva for ad advanced breast cancer, and there had even been some dabbling in chemotherapy post-operatively or in the adjuvant setting for breast cancer. Um, now, the results were conflicting, and uh, they summarize here in this paper that in respect, short-term single-agent therapy uh, was probably the problem. So. Basically, the chemotherapy wasn't given for long enough, and it was single agent. We're talking uh, melphalan, you know, a nitrogen mustard, uh, 5-FU, thiotepa as single agents. Um, 
drugs that are not commonly used today in the adjuvant treatment of breast cancer. In fact, CMF is not commonly used. It's a regimen that I've used uh, or been involved with once or twice um, in someone who the physician or oncologist didn't think could, could tolerate traditional AC. Um, one thing that was uh, was known that was known at this time was the risk factor of having lymph node disease um, being an increased risk for relapse later after what was hoped to be cured. So this led, quote, to the conclusion that in most patients with regional nodes involved, the disease was already disseminated. And that led to this concept of using chemotherapy or systemic treatment for, quote, micrometastases. All right, and this is what we know today is why we give adjuvant chemotherapy is to, is to kill areas of micrometastatic disease, areas that of cancer that have spread beyond the original tumor that are so small, micro, that they can't be seen with the naked eye or with advanced imaging techniques. Um, they, they go through some of the, the studies that have been done. So there was a study looking, uh, this was, um, I think this was Bernie Fisher, whose name we might get to in another Landmarks um, podcast, uh, looking at melphalan, a treatment failure rate of 22% in those receiving placebo versus 9.7% in those giving melphalan. So basically a, a little better than a 50% relative risk reduction for recurrence, which was what treatment failure. And now in that study, premenopausal women, the difference was even greater, suggesting that premenopausal women uh, maybe had even better benefit from, from the chemo. Um, so one of, one of the first multi-drug regimens for breast cancer was CMFP, cyclophosphamide, methotrexate, fluorouracil, and prednisone, which was developed at the NCI in Bethesda. I can only guess the prednisone was there because it worked in, uh, in leukemias uh, and lymphoma, so they thought maybe it works for all cancers. Uh, that's not true, as we now know. Um, and then, of course, CMF is, is that regimen without the prednisone. Um, there was a, another study in 76. Um, there was a randomized study showing that melphalan was superior to placebo. So there was a little bit of dabbling. Now, of course, today we don't give melphalan. Um, so, so that's kind of the background where we are at this time. When this study started, I think it was 1973. So there were some clinical trials of adjuvant chemo, but they were single agent. Uh, they did seem to decrease the rate of recurrence, but had not caught on yet. Um, so this is CMF. These patients were all um, studied in Milan. So who are these patients? Well, the breast cancer patients who had had a mastectomy, so either radical mastectomy or a, a more extended uh, mastectomy, what they call conventional or extended radical mastectomy. Uh, the, the extended involves even more cutting um, in, in true uh, Halstead fashion. They were all potentially curable and they had to be node positive, at least one or more uh, axillary and lymph node positive. So these were all node positive. We know today these would be very high risk patients for recurrence. Uh, other notable inclusion criteria occurred a white count above 4,000, platelet count above 130. Uh, notable exclusion criteria, age over 75, so elderly were excluded, as is um, unfortunately the norm in oncology studies. And then women who were pregnant and lactating, uh, which is a separate issue, how to treat breast cancer in those patients. Uh, these patients were stratified by age, over under age 50, and then one to three lymph nodes or four or more lymph nodes. That's how they were stratified. Uh, to either placebo, not placebo, either to nothing or 12 cycles of CMF. And as we'll see, it's basically a year of chemo. Uh, and no post-operative radiation. Today, you would, you know, you'd see radiation in someone who had breast conserving or a lumpectomy. You might see local radiation to prevent local recurrence. 
patients were enrolled from June 1, 1973 to, and this date jumped out at me as an American, September 11, 1975. Uh, about 400 patients uh, randomized, so it's about 200 in each arm. That number's a little bit off, but that's, that's pretty close. Primary endpoint. First evidence of treatment failure, which was either local, regional, or distant recurrence. So, uh, treatment. They start the treatment section with this. The conventional Halstead radical mastectomy consisted of removal of the breast, pector pectoral muscles, and axillary contents. And then the extended is internal mammary nodes uh, and some other stuff that doesn't quite make sense, make sense to me as a pharmacist. So pretty invasive uh, surgical techniques. All right, so here's what we care about. CMF. Cyclophosphamide, 100 milligrams per meter squared by mouth. We don't use, not used to seeing cyclophosphamide given orally, but this was 100 milligrams per meter squared by mouth from days 1 to 14. Methotrexate, 40 milligrams per meter squared IV on days 1 and 8. And fluorouracil, which I'll say is 5-FU, 600 milligrams per meter squared on days 1 and 8. Uh, and these were 28-day cycles. So you had two weeks of oral cyclophosphamide, and then a day one and day eight of 5-FU and methotrexate. So the way I think about this, let's say you were starting, this is early February. If you start on February 1, you would be taking cyclophosphamide for the first two weeks of February. You'd get 5-FU and methotrexate on the 1st and 8th of February, and then you'd start over, all over again on March 1st. So 28-day cycle, so two weeks free of chemo to allow things to recover, like the bone marrow. Uh, now, this is nice here. I appreciate this as an oncology pharmacist. They rounded the cyclophosphamide dose because it was a, would have been an oral dosage form to 25 milligram tablets. Uh, also, in patients over 65, they had an initial dose reduction. So methotrexate was half the dose. It was, no, sorry, it was 75% uh, of the original dose, 30 milligrams per meter squared. And 5-FU was uh, reduced by third to 400 milligrams per meter squared initially. And chemo started two to four weeks after mastectomy. Uh, and we have evidence now that the earlier you start chemo, adjuvant chemo after mastectomy or surgery, uh, the better the outcomes. Uh, counts were monitored, so they would monitor counts. And as we saw uh, with MOP, we are not yet using neutropenia or absolute neutrophil count to measure hematologic toxicity. We're still using white blood cell count. So what they call uh, a grade one toxicity which would be a white count below 4,000, but above uh, 2.5 or 25,000, uh, or a platelet count uh, above 75, but below 130, it was a 50% dose reduction. And then a grade two toxicity, which would be a white count below uh, 2.5 and a platelet count below 75, then the drug was held until recovery to a grade one toxicity. Of course, those grades are a little bit different than what we use now. And patients uh, with cystide to secondary cyclophosphamide just discontinued until resolution of symptoms and restarted. This got me thinking, um, they're not talking about hemorrhagic cystitis here, they're talking about chemical cystitis, but this got me thinking about mesna. Now mesna doesn't get onto the scene. If you PubMed mesna, the first mentions you'll find are in the early 70s, like 71, 74. It's not as a chemoprotectant, it's as a mucolytic. Uh, and it's not till 79 that I saw, I found the first mention of ifosfamide, um, the first mention of mesna, uh, as a protectant uh, for ifosmide, and that was from a study that was written and published in German. And the title of the study was, was translated as mucolytic agent to prevent uh, hemorrhagic cystitis with ifosmide. So it took a while uh, to, to figure out that this was uh, a chemoprotectant, right, and how that worked. Uh, the statistical analysis section is 
incredibly brief for a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, at least compared to today's studies. In fact, the statistical analysis section does not contain any numbers or numerals or digits of any kind. Um, Chi-squared test was calculated each subgroup of patients. Uh, and then for treatment failure, time distributions were calculated by standard life table methods. Uh, a mantle method of the W test of Wilcoxon was also used. Uh, so there's no alpha, you know, there's no, at least not published an a priori alpha or, or goal p value for statistical significance or any power analysis, um, uh, which, you know, most second year pharmacy students would ding as a pretty big flaw in a study. So back to our landmark article. So looking at the results, big picture, primary endpoint was treatment failure defined as local, regional, or distant recurrence. So the failure rate was 24% with no treatment and 5.3% with CMF. They say highly significant. I'll just say it was statistically significant. The p-value, 10 times, uh, or 10 to the negative six, with, by my rudimentary math, is 0.00001. So it was statistically significant, I'd say. Uh, that's a number needed to treat of 5.3 uh, patients, we'll say six patients. You had to treat six patients, um, and the follow-up I think was 27 months. So six patients treated to prevent one recurrence of breast cancer in 27 months. The way, th the way I have traditionally thought of number needed to treat, if it's less than 20, it's pretty much uh, a home run, um, something that should be incorporated in practice. Number needed to treat of more than 100, you know, not terribly beneficial unless it's a disease state or intervention that affects like everybody. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm going to treat 20 to 100 is, is maybe the gray area. So this is a pretty big, very impactful difference. And I'm going to treat, uh, you know, of, of six or less, you know, 5.3. Uh, but you can't have an number treat that's, that's in the digits. We're going to say six. Now, the difference was even greater in node positive patients. They were all node positive. Even greater in patients who had four or more lymph nodes. Listen to this recurrence rate in the, in the node treatment group. Failure rates, 40.7% versus 8.8%. That's a number you trade of almost three, 3.1. I mean, very beneficial. And even those who just had one to three, one lymph node positive, uh, there was still a statistically significant difference. They say P equals 0 0.02. Uh, there was no difference in pre and postmenopausal, which they spend some time in the discussion um, talking about their surprise. Um, Looking at the baseline demographics, which are presented in a way that, that is not typical, at least in today's world, um, you can see that they're about 50 50 um, age wise. There, are, there were, you know, maybe 40% of the patients were under the age of 50, 60% over the age of 80, or over the age of 50, and about the same split between pre and postmenopausal. So most of the patients uh, were over the age of 50 and postmenopausal, but there were still a sizable portion of premenopausal and patients 49 or younger. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot uh, else as far as results to talk about efficacy-wise from a toxicity point. You know, they, they do describe the hematologic toxicity. Um, but before I get to that, we saw this in the MOP article, how things were not standardized quite yet. So, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting here. Various degrees of nausea and vomiting occurred in large majority of cases within a few hours of IV drug administration. You know, very vague language no numbers associated with it. And, and that's going to be a big change later in oncology is the objective and scientific study of 
uh, these other endpoints like nausea and vomiting. So there was prominent abdominal disturbance produced by continuous use of cyclophosphamide. Um, and quote, unless systematically encouraged to take this drug regularly, this drug being cyclophosphamide, about one third about, we didn't measure this, about one third of the patients showed a repeated tendency to discontinue treatment or diminish the dose because of prolonged nausea and loss of appetite. So we know today, five, five plus years of adjuvant hormonal treatment is the best treatment for, for hormone positive breast cancer. And we know how hard it is for, for women to stay adherent to that. Same issues with adherence back in, back in uh, the CMF paper. So uh, looking at the hematologic toxicity, 67% had some degree of leukopenia, what they called a grade one. So a white count less than four, but above 2.5. Only 4% had a quote grade two white count, which would have been less than uh, a total white count of 2.5. Uh, platelet count less than 75, also grade two that would have required holding therapy, only 14%. Um, mucositis, uh, conjunctivitis, which is not something I would have expected. Conjunctivitis happened in about a quarter of patients. Loss of hair happened in 25, usually starting after the first cycle. Most cases was all done by the fifth or sixth cycle. And some even had a hair regrowth at the end of the treatment, despite still maintaining on the drug. A, a burn, this is the conjunctival, a burning sensation of conjunctiva associated with redness of the mucosa and lacrimation was noticed in 25% of the patients, so probably the 5-FU. Uh, chemical cystitis by cyclophosphamide occurred in one-third, um, but hemorrhagic cystitis only observed in two patients. Again, cyclophosphamide, lower risk of hemorrhagic cystitis than iphosphamide. Uh, and then half of the premenopausal patients had amenorrhea as well. Uh, per, uh, attributed to cyclophosphamide. 45% uh, of the patients were able to, to finish all 12 cycles. 75% uh, completed six cycles, and everybody randomized to CMF completed the first two cycles. By the end, um, you know, as overall, 76% of the uh, dose of cyclophosphamide that was um, prescribed was administered, 80% methotrexate, 81% for 5 of you. Now that's among those who did receive treatment. So this was their proof that this was able to be, uh, to be tolerated. Uh, so, you know, they, they spend some time now uh, in the discussion talking about the, the place, of, place in therapy and how, you know, a Bernie Fisher study showed a difference with adjuvant chemo and pre- and postmenopausal that didn't. What does that mean going forward? Um, and I'm getting a little long on time here, and I apologize. So I just want to get to my favorite part uh, of the article. Uh, so they spent some time talking about how we really think breast cancer is a chronic disease based on what we know. They spent some time debating should we substitute chlorambucil in place of cyclophosphamide for, for uh, the sake of toxicity. Um, so when the, the, this is a landmark clinical trial. When it came out, they were looking at changing things. They didn't quite know what it meant. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind as new drugs come out all the time for, for cancer. Uh, quote, this is the last paragraph. At present, we are not in a position to state with certainty that combination chemotherapy with CMF is superior to single agent treatment with melphalan or the, continue, or the, or the, or the combination allows us to decrease the duration of treatment. Um, so this was a landmark clinical article and they appropriately said we don't have the overall survival data yet so maybe this shouldn't be practice changing this yet. Um, it turned out that this was practice changing to use combination chemo in the adjuvant setting and that those overall survival data come in later 
There's, uh, I think there's a 10-year update that's been published. There's a 20-year update that's been published. Uh, really, really good science, uh, good clinical research, and without it, um, there would be fewer women today than there were thanks to this study. So, adjuvant CMF uh, by Bonadonna. It's the OG of adjuvant chemo, as the kids would say. So, thanks for listening, and have a pleasant day, pleasant week, pleasant weekend, pleasant month. Uh, thanks for listening. Find us uh, on the iTunes store. Uh, rate us, review us, leave a five-star review. Uh, you can follow me uh, at Twitter, at FarmDeetNib, and follow the show at OncoFarm. Thanks again. Bye-bye. <laughs>